All right. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Tonight, we are uh, going to talk the Israel-Palestine war and particularly a lot of the spiritual implications that um, surround it or people want to have surround it. So this is going to be a subject, you know, I guess of debate. We're going to be theologically transparent, but also, you know, we're going to be theologically giving hot takes and stuff like that. So, you know, we're probably going to open up and offend some people. So that's probably going to be the nature of this episode. But uh, it, again, we're going to be discussing important issues. Uh, Israel-Palestine is an important issue, but it's not uh, necessarily the only issue within that issue. So uh, I see TDs in the chat. Uh, time to go full Andrew Torba mode. I don't. I mean, if it I helps, mean, if it helps, I might make some different arguments than him for tonight because obviously you know this you know i'd say war i mean it's kind of been a war for a long time uh jennifer herb says good morning which means she's somewhere else in this world uh, australia uh i i would guess because it's probably morning over there early afternoon um so very uh a lot of stuff going on right now i actually wanted to do this sort of topic last year in a stream called uh it would have been called wars and rumors of wars because at the time last year around september last year there was about like four or five wars or rumors of wars going on it was uh you had russia ukraine obviously you had armenia and azerbaijan which is still continuing to this day we're going to talk about that in a in the stream for sure uh I want to say there's other wars and rumors of wars going yeah, on back. Uh, Kosovo and Serbia was one of them. Uh, Taiwan and China. So that's four. And maybe I'm just fabricating. But if we wanted to add up all the wars and rumors of war, Iran and the Taliban don't like each other. Um, so that'd be five. And then also, interestingly enough, the Taliban has asked Iran for you know safe passage through their territory to go fight Israel. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know whether they're going to unite around that because, you know, uh, I, I, Iran's, you know, Iran and they don't like the Taliban's, but even if they don't like Israel, so who knows uh, where their loyalties, uh, where that ranks on their uh, priorities. So, I mean, I, mean, I do, I do got to say, as soon as I sent you sent the, the text saying, hey, do the stream tonight, and I send the respond, I get a text from AI Pack basically asking for money uh american israel yes uh, yep. yes i get i got one of their phishing texts asking for money as soon as i say yeah let's do the live stream so i think someone knows something <laughs> someone knows what's up you know what's funny uh one of the top the top one of the top advertisers on evangelicaldarkweb.org uh we have switched back to using google adsense because we tried using the azoic platform but they are scammers i don't like them at all but luckily i can just I was easy, you know, I'm tech savvy enough to disentangle is actually the Jewish uh, Christian lobby, so to speak. It, it's not quite AI pack, but it's a lot of those, you know, types of organizations. They advertise heavily on evangelical dark web. I just think that's hilarious. But, you know, because I'll take their money, but uh, because I can't really control them I, or I can't control what ads necessarily come to the site. As much as people would like me to, I can ban specific categories. But if you don't give me an actual link, I can't just ban something outright. Uh, but 
that being said, it's just funny. A lot of money in this uh, type of thing. And, I, you know, it's just stereotypes exist for a reason, I guess, is what you'll say about that. Uh, so with that said, um, I, I do have a poll. And I'm going to bring up this Twitter poll, but you, you brought up uh, Mark Dice. You wrote an article on Mark Dice kind of being uh, giving a good take on this. And why do you think uh, what exactly does he say differently than other conservative uh, podcasters or the like that I mean, you would have written an article about? I mean, one, he does insert theology at the end. So I think that's one of the things that separates the uh, the men from the boys. But the other thing is he's not just towing the, the partisan line of we need to engage in a conflict. We need to stand by our greatest ally, obviously, like Ben Shapiro is like taking the, the lead of trying to saber rattle on behalf of Israel. And obviously, a lot of people in conservative media have very conflicting loyalties. And let's just be honest, there's not a whole lot of reformed or even just even even amongst the Catholics, like you don't necessarily necessarily see a lot of, I guess, traditional Christian presence on this issue. And I think that's where Mark Dice really stood out. Also, there's the notion that a lot of these America first guys aren't remaining America first on the on the topic. They're completely saying we need to. Are you saying that Charlie Kirk going America first was just a ruse? (laughs) Yeah. Now, interesting about Charlie Kirk is, you know, he got hammered in 2019. There, it was this event called the Groiper Wars. Uh, so it's like Nick Fuentes' crowd. They trolled a bunch of Turning Point USA college events where he was speaking. Charlie Kirk lost that debate. And you could tell because Charlie Kirk started emphasizing faith and Christianity a lot more after that. And America First became more of a mantra that he embraced after that. But yeah, he is uh, going pretty hard for Israel, even kind of endorsing a story that he would lay. He's later like, oh, this and we're not really sure if this happened or not. But, you know, we'll talk about what that specific story is a little bit later. Uh, so you point out that, you know, he's someone that's actually giving a balanced take that brings in historic understanding of Christianity and covenant theology into the discussion, whereas most that's pretty much absent is what you're saying from most like, conservatives yeah i mean find uh, me the find me the pundit that's like a that you would label as a genuine christian and would actually affirm like some form of covenant theology and that's well, just steve largely... Dave sort of did uh he affirmed a form that says that there's still going to be a revival for the jews in the end well, i don't think so he reformed a form I don't of think covenant that's... theology that's like that which is within the realm of historic Christian teaching. It's under I mean, the umbrella. Yeah, I mean, that's generally under the umbrella, but I don't know. I thought he was a little... Again, I, you're, I thought... he's in the crossfires just because obviously like Glenn Beck is, you know, Glenn Beck, who would, uh, I mean, Mormons teach that they're, you know, Jewish too. And he's doing a live stream with Ben Shapiro and... Uh, Dave Rubin, the guy that murdered like eight embryos to have his child. So, you know, going to talk about Hamas doing murders. Uh, apparently. So, uh, 
Uh, Yellowmont says, I'm fine with whatever you have to say as long as we agree the word Israel in the Bible has always meant a country that was formed after World War II. I mean, no uh, one no one before 1800 has ever understood what it meant. Uh, no one. No one. So, uh, man, uh, I got something to show you, and it's a, something I've been reading. It's a, But I'll show you uh, it in a little bit, but it is... It's actually uh, John Hakey's book, In Defense of Israel. I've been reading it. And unrelated to this topic, by the way, I, I'm reading it because people ask me to research whether you know, John Hagee's a false teacher or not. And I thought that this book would be a treasure trove of like, you know, I, I think my, my hypothesis was that the book was worse than what I've read about the book and watched about the book. And so far, that has definitely turned out to be true. Um, and you're right when you bring up that, uh, you know, no one before 1800 understood, you know, Christianity properly. And that's John Hagee's attitude, except he would put the year around 1945 that it took the Holocaust to happen for Christians to actually understand the Bible and what it teaches. Like, that's kind of his argument. And it's very contemptuous to Christians of the past. But that, that's what I'm finding in, in reading John Hagee's arguments. But, you know, obviously not all dispensationalists of John Hagee. Some of them are leaky, whatever that means. I'm not entirely sure what that means. But some of them go that way. Uh, anyway, but you're right. I mean, there are some edgelords online that are kind of more balanced about this. But overall, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of dispensationalists or people that recognize that their audience is heavily influenced by dispensationalism. So they kind of cater to that. And I think, you know, someone like Steve Dace might fall into that category. So, um, it, so it's interesting that you point out Mark Dice as a standout from that. Yeah. And keep in mind, I mean, this is a guy that has like a million plus subscribers on YouTube. So it's not like, you know, I'm not pointing out some small guy. And again, his, his, his take on it was more elaborate than like a Tucker Carlson's even. Like not that Tucker's take was bad, but just it wasn't as extensive. Yeah, Tucker Carlson, I think, is getting a little careless. I kind of thought. Yeah, you don't need to compare it to uh, fentanyl. I don't think that's a, a fair. I don't think it's a one-to-one -one comparison. And I think, you know, he's, I guess, kind of going down his own slippery slope, so to speak. But uh, we, we can talk about Tucker Carlson another day because he's still going to be around. So I ran a Twitter poll earlier today. And here it is. Which is the gayest position to hold? Support Hamas. Support Israel. Support Ukraine. If you're uh, on Twitter, follow Evangelical at Evangelical DW. And yes, I'm still calling it Twitter because if I post an X link on a WordPress site, the it does nothing. But if I post a Twitter link, it actually still does something because it's still Twitter on the desktop. So it's still Twitter uh, functionally. I mean, yeah. I like that. I like that Ukraine still wins. I voted Ukraine, by the way. I think this is objectively Ukraine. Uh, there, there is a case for Israel not being the gayest, and there is a case for Hamas not being the gayest, but supporting Ukraine is absolutely the gayest 
you are literally supporting a nation that is the money laundering machine for the Democratic Party. Like how, you know, against your self-interest do you have to be to support the Ukraine? You know, so that was that, that, and I don't think it's really gay at all to support Russia because they're kind of like, you know, the nation that's pushing back against globo homosexuality. So I don't think that's really gay at all. And Hamas has a lot of queers for Hamas. And you see a lot of those protesters outside of, you know, in Western countries, at least. I mean, Ukraine is kind of the embodiment of global homo, as it's called, or the globalist American empire, as it's also referred. So uh, the results for the listeners out there and the uh, people with small eyes or can't see the small print, uh, Ukraine won or is currently winning. There's 16 hours left, but they have 51.4% of the vote. That's higher than when I last checked, by the way. Hamas has 33.6% in second place, and Israel has 15% in third place. So uh, Israel was, is the gayest because it's the longest narrative, says uh, TD. Uh, uh, Yelamal says, I don't see the poll, but Ukraine is the answer. And yeah, that, that was my vote was Ukraine. Because again, you're you're literally supporting the Democrat Party's laundry machine. So I, I thought that was a good way to frame the issue because you know, my opening salvo is I don't really support either side. This is, you know, this is kind of a conflict that's akin to Americans and Native, you know, Amer- America and Native Americans in terms of land dispute uh, and technological disadvantages. Obviously, I mean, maybe, there's maybe a religious Azte- overtone to it. Maybe Aztecs without the Catholics, but yeah. Right. I, I'm just talking about in terms of land disputes and, you know, who has what rights to what land and stuff like that. And um, I, I just. Here's the thing. I mentioned Azerbaijan and Armenia earlier. Azerbaijan is currently ethnic cleansing Armenian Christians in the certain disputed territory on their border. They are ethnically cleansing Christians. Um, you know, a hundred thousand, I think, one hundred and fifty thousand have been displaced. So six figures being displaced or killed by the Azerbaijani. And you know who's the you know who's been supplying the Azerbaijan military weapons. The Israelis. And my understanding And this is, is not new news. And my understanding is because, you know, I mean, technically both countries border Iran, but obviously Azerbaijan has a larger border with Iran. And that's that's the exchange that's being made. Is you know, not only do they buy weapons, but there's a espionage element and a data collection element against that's positions Israel against Iran as well. Okay, so you think there's something more to that. What's interesting is that Armenia is in a military alliance with the Russians, but they don't invoke that military alliance for their own self-defense. I think that's pretty, you know, that's malfeasance on the president of Armenia's part. But I think he's also like more pro-American. So maybe there's something about the Americans kind of, you know, tearing him away from what would be the most strategically uh, necessary uh, way to fight back. 
Sam Rise, Sam Riza says I'm Ashkenazi. Can confirm we are aggressively inbred. Now I'll have something to say about the Ashkenazis because that that's to me a very fascinating, highly uh, debated ethnic group. So we'll we'll have some some stuff to say about uh, that in a second. But I'm just trying to flesh out my. I have a more medieval view of foreign policy. You know, I, I you know, I, I like playing CK3 uh, and I, I have a much more, you know, again, more medieval view of, you know, let's just have overt vassal states and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and that's kind of what this is in terms of um, Israel and Palestine. I, I, you know, this is, you know, partially land dispute. Israel has the claim on the land because they have the land. They have the land. They won the war. That gives them the claim to the land, whether the claim is fabricated or real or whatever. It's pretty much moot at this point. So let's just. So in that sense, I would say, you know, decolonizing the Middle East was a mistake. You know, you going back to the medieval mindset the British Empire did what the Crusaders could not. They conquered all of the Holy Land, all of the Levant. I mean, the Crusaders, the first crusade was particularly successful and, you know, quite, quite supernatural. And then they decide to give up the Holy Land. The British decide to give up the Holy Land and create a Jewish ethnic state. And they also created like a two-state solution. But, you know, again, there was immediately a war that broke out. Well, the other thing is they, they drew, I mean, this goes with Africa as well. They drew a lot of lines and had a lot of groups of people that, you know, don't necessarily get along to one another. I mean, they put Shiite, Shiites and Sunnis together in Iraq. Obviously, I think Africa has like tribes that hate each other in the same country. And that's what broke out war in, uh, Rwanda and other nations in Iraq. So when they drew, when, you know, decolonization drew the lines, they set off a lot of ethnic tensions. Yeah. I mean, and supposedly the Ottomans were good about keeping the peace in that area. I mean, obviously the Ottomans during that time period specifically were genociding Armenian Christians, which is, you know, an event that most countries don't really want to acknowledge to my understanding the Israelis being one of them. And I don't know if America has even acknowledged that genocide actually took place. And, you know, Sam Reza points out the British left because they were broke. And, you know, that, that does play a large part in it. But again, you know, decolonization overall made the world a worse place, yeah, not just is, in the Middle East, but in Africa and uh, a lot of other places. And yeah, what, what's, what's money when you can just print it? <laughs> uh again well because the british it was after world war ii they yeah, had a lot of debt so no, no the gold standard was still a thing and oh for at least america but yeah well, you know what's money when you can just print it so uh that's kind of my breakdown and another thing is like this is more controversial but the bible doesn't really recognize the ca the categories of civilian casualties versus military casualties that's not a biblical concept so even in war, it's not necessarily unjustified to attack, say, you know, bombing Hiroshima or firebombing Tokyo. 
I don't think that's morally wrong because nations war against nations. Well, and this not was not just militaries against militaries or armies against armies, boats against boats. It's nation against nation, and a nation is a people and a place. I remember listening, and this was like an Aaron McIntyre pod- podcast, but he was talking about reading a paper, like a white paper or something from like a Chinese military expert. And they're talking about killing IT people because that's part of warfare now is the cyber, the cyber angle of warfare is going to be a increasing, have increasing prevalence. So targeting the IT infrastructure to your enemy is vital to war in the modern era. And this was the Chinese that came up with this or that wrote it down. Yeah. And, you know, if someone, you know, makes is a factor, you know, if there's a factory out there, because that's what was often targeted was industrial zones in, say, World War II, industrial areas, which is why all of a sudden when you bomb Dresden, it's controversial because that wasn't industrial. But in any case, it's still that contributes to the war effort. It contributes to the nation, and it's the nation you're at war with, not the Wehrmacht. You're not at war with the Wehrmacht. You're not at war with the Kriegsmarine. And the other thing when it comes to Israel and Palestine is that neither side cares about civilian casualties, and I'm tired of pretending that the Israelis do. So if you look at the numbers, they don't lie. Israel doesn't care about civilian casualties. It's obvious that Hamas doesn't. Nor does Hamas care about, you know, not defiling dead bodies or anything like that. But ne- neither side cares, and I'm pre- tired of pretending that they do. Um, Israel will be like, we send a warning shot to let people know to leave the area, but where are they supposed to go in Gaza? They have nowhere to go. Uh... And supposedly, you know, Hamas is like, no, don't leave your meat shields. But again, this is also a densely populated area. And again, even if they send them warning shot and Hamas is like, okay, time for us to leave too. It, it seems very ineffective as a, as, as a strategy overall, as opposed to just bombing, you know, again, or just not bombing at all because it still continues regardless. So I'm not overly convinced that, you know, I don't think that Israel cares about civilian casualties. And along those lines, they've been, obviously I don't condone the actions of Hamas um, at all, but I don't necessarily condemn, I don't condemn the actions of Israel saying, we're going to cut off your electricity and water supply. No, it's called war. You're laying siege to an area. You cut off the supplies when you lay siege. You don't let you don't let food and water enter a siege zone. Do people not understand history? Because if you let that stuff enter, you just prolong the siege. So and then more people die because you prolonged it. So there I, I don't have anything against Israel for doing that. And I don't have is against anything against Israel for supposedly using white phosphorus munitions. I don't care about, you know, chemical weapon conventions at all. I had no issues when uh, Bashar al-Assad gassed Al-Qaeda, Al-Nursa troops with nerve gas or whatever in Syria. I had no qualms about that. 
there's nothing immoral about that according to the bible because it's war it's no it's not any different than firebombing tokyo or anything else anything else there's no moral difference between bullet and nerve gas when it comes to killing someone in a war it's not morally different so just some of my thoughts and i also do, uh another thing is like israel doesn't need to lie about 40 decapitated babies they don't need to lie about that because they they had a news reporter that just made that up or reported it without verifying it and then all of a sudden you know it's been a couple days and that one got walked back like you don't need to lie about it i, I think the world plainly sees okay a lot of what hamas has done is atrocious no you don't no need one, to make it up yeah i mean no one's surprised it's hamas no safe kind of that's, I mean, the jihadis and Hamas, I mean, it's kind of what they're known for. So, uh, anything else that's controversial to say? Uh, oh, okay. Yes, my solution. Israel should displace all the Palestinians. Just end this conflict. Displace them. Send them to Libya or something. Well, I mean, they could. Cede, That's my solution. I mean, they could also cede the territory back to Egypt because it was given to Egypt. Egypt and then, don't want that. Egypt, oh, no, Egypt they don't, don't want, want it now. now. They don't want it now. But yeah, uh, but obviously, when you spend you know dozens of years or decades you know, destabilizing the Middle East, you started a civil war in, in Syria, and of course that created refugees. You start a you depose Mubarak in Egypt. Uh, Gaddafi in Libya Gaddafi and uh, tried to depose um, well, Assad. Assad in uh, Syria. And but, uh, Israel's the bad guy in that conflict. Between the, the Syrians and the Israelis, Israel's the bad guy. They, you know, they bombed the Syrian, some Syrian airports recently. And you, know, and you wonder why Syria is allied with Iran. Well, you just keep bombing them. You helped... Um, a certain terrorist organization known as the Islamic State uh, pretty much run half of Syria's geographical region because you kept trying to target and destabilize the Syrian government, which, you know, that's what happened. Uh, Americans were heavily involved in the rise of ISIS as well. I mean, when you look at the, um, uh, the uh, embassy attack in uh, Libya, what was that city called? It wasn't Tripoli. Benghazi. Um, when we look at that event, they were taking guns away from terrorists in Libya and they were moving them to Syria. Well, who are they going? And they were working with the Turks. And the Turks backed these terror, you know, the Turks were backing the terrorists in the Northwest. But um, what exactly were, were those weapons going to? Like, who are these weapons going to? Well, the Islamic State kind of comes out of nowhere with pretty sophisticated military tactics. America's probably involved in that. So uh, those are just some of my thoughts. I think the solution is to dis displace all the Palestinians uh, by right of conquest. Israel has a right to do that as far as nations go. Now, again, um, I'm not going to be the guy that says, oh, Israel violated international law by settling uh, land. Which, again, again, I don't not believe a, in international law. Yeah, it's not a biblical concept. Not a real, not a real problem. And that's basically the story of humanity: is people move into a place, displace other people, and society goes on. So, I mean, yeah. I, at I the end of the day, you can't have a technologically superior and more or less a developed country next to a third world country and not expect problems. Right, and 
I mean, people like to say, oh, Israel provides them the electricity and the water. Yeah, because that's a pretty convenient way to, you know, to have leverage on a complete open air prison and then just turn it off when you need to, like they are right now, which, again, I don't have problems with. But they're just kicking the can down the road. They should just displace them all uh, and, you know, be done with the issue. You know, nations can expel troublesome populations. You know, the, the Jews know a thing or two about that, don't they? Um, so uh, Yalma says they should follow the 2023 tradition of murdering innocent people to open up valuable beachfront property. I don't know why that's a 2023 tradition. But again, what I'm advocating is the alternative to genocide. I don't want the genocide and no one really wants, you know, I, some people do want the genocide. I don't want the genocide. I think displacement is the proper path and just end the issue decisively. Uh, Israel is America's assuming assuming you can't give it back to Egypt. Israel's America's pit bull in the Middle East. That's their purpose from the Amer from an American standpoint. I don't that that's an interesting way to put it. I, I'm not sure if I I'm not entirely sure, you know, which tail is the tail wagging the dog, so to speak. Um, have you talked about Lindsey Graham's think, insane holy war comments regarding this. This is actually a good time to talk about that. I mean, I kind of think they work, they go hand in hand. Like, I mean, obviously, I mean, Iraq, we got into Iraq because of WMDs that didn't exist because those WMDs would have threatened Israel. And of course, the other reason we got into Iraq was Saddam Hussein was going to undermine the petrodollar, which I mean, 20, I mean, had he waited 20 years, then Vladimir Putin would have done the same thing. In America's defense, the Saddam Hussein did sign a treaty that would have uh, made it an act of war for him. It would have been an act of war for him to develop a nuclear program, but he wasn't actually developing a nuclear program. Yeah, not, or not then. But so, oh well, yeah, he, he part of it is we were we're essentially uh, working with the Israelis to depose a lot of the Middle Eastern regimes and. So I don't know who is the pit bull versus, I mean, it's maybe they're the pit bull more than just the muscle. I don't, know, I, I don't know. Is it pinky in the brain? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Lois says Israelis don't decapitate Christians yet. You are bashing Israelis and saying they're basically the same like Hamas. They, it's true. They aren't as barbaric as Hamas. That is true. But Israel is still providing weapons to the Azerbaijanis who are ethnic cleansing regions from Armenian Christians. Is that not a concern? I mean, we pretty I don't think Israel is a force for good in the Middle East, as evident with Syria. And I don't think they're necessarily a good player on the world stage. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. That, that's my take. And this is a country that's recognized at, by Voice of the Martyrs as hostile to Christianity. And... It's very hard for a Western country to get recognized by Voice of the Martyrs for being hostile to Christianity because Canada is certainly hostile to Christianity, but they are not marked as red uh, on a on a, on the world map of countries. So uh, Israel, 
only has the political capital to uh, annex Gaza. Uh, I mean, they technically already have annexed Gaza. They've already annexed all the area, and they also annexed the Sinai Peninsula once upon a time, and then they gave that back. I believe it was during the Six-Day War, they annexed the Sinai Peninsula, and then they had some sort of peace agreement with Egypt after the Yom Kippur War where they gave it back. So uh, that's part of the history as well. But they in during the Six-Day War, so when everyone talks about the pre-1967 borders, it's because during the Six-Day War, Israel launched a preemptive attack. And they had, the way that they did it was they had like 60 planes total. But they just kept running two by two, and they just constantly kept the jets coming in and leveling airports. So they took out the basically the air force of their surrounding enemies, and they were able to really just you know, own the air. So it's pretty fascinating. The six day war is so, uh, let's see it. America has a lot of countries they use it as an excuse to be involved in the region. I guess that's in your response to you saying that Israel was part of the reason why America went to, uh, Iraq. Also nine 11 was kind of thrown in there as well. Yeah, yeah. But right now it seems like all eyes are on Iran and that's, and that's going back other... to the Lindsey Graham comments. Like they want America to be the muscle they to take been... on Iran because I don't think Israel can take on Iran without resorting to nuclear. And th they've been goading that war for decades. Iran's they, a like, large country. The old, it's mountainous. There's the old meme that you know the Iraq, you know, the Q turns to an N. I mean, well, maybe not. It's not a meme. It's a political cartoon. But the idea is they, you know, Iran was the next Iraq. Has pretty much been like a narrative for probably, I mean, since Bush really, but, and I, again, back in, back in high school, I did a whole project on the whole Iranian nuclear question. And, you know, here we are in 2023 and they don't have a nuke yet. As far as anyone's concerned, despite all of the, the propaganda that they're developing this nuclear program, which if anything, they just want a nuke so that America will leave them alone. Kind of like a North Korea situation. They yeah, don't I it is not morally wrong for Iran to want a nuke because that's in their interest as a nation to defend themselves. Like you got to recognize again, the medieval mindset foreign policy is like sports. You want your team to have a good quarterback and let's just say a nuclear warhead and ICB nuclear warhead is a quarterback. ICBMs intercontinental ballistic missiles are your wide receivers and the end zone is, you know, nuking another country if you need to in a war, I guess uh, if, if you want to take that analogy further, it's not necessarily morally wrong for them to want that. The reason why they want it is morally questionable, but I mean, I would assume you already created and the UN wants to create a system of haves and have nots when it comes to nuclear technology. That's why several nations didn't sign the non-proliferation treaty and other nations that don't have nukes have America's nukes in their nation. Like a lot of NATO nations don't have their own nuclear weapons, but they have America's nuclear arsenal in their country to defend their country so they can say we're not proliferating but you know we have other countries nukes in our country um so that's how a lot of this stuff works uh there's like nine or 11 countries that have nuclear weapons and keep in mind by invading iraq and afghanistan we've done nothing but given iran a lot of we've basically taken out iran's historical enemies and given them a satellite state in iraq 
and we've probably gotten them closer to Russia. So, I mean, our, our decades of foreign policy meddling in the Middle East have emboldened Iran. And I think Yelamoth kind of summarizes it well using the meme. Now, is this a Dungeons and Dragons thing, the chaotic evil and lawful evil? I, I guess it's a play on that, like uh, chaotic neutral and stuff like that. But Israel is lawful evil. Palestine is chaotic evil. I think that's correct. I, I think that's how I feel about it. Like they're very sophisticated suits and ties versus uh, AK forty seven and AK and turban. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, yeah, th there's a a barbarity with Hamas, but there's a sophistication with Israel. Um, I think that's kind of my feelings on the matter. Because again, this is a very anti-Christian nation as well. Um, but. This is just two pagans kind of going at it. And I'm just not here to pick a side in that. I'm, I'm just not eager to pick a side in that. I don't well, really support either side. All the uh, attention that the border really was getting. As much as I want to. Now, I am moved by the fact that there's Americans in the crossfires. Like, that is the thing that can move me the most in this. Because those are my people. Uh, but... Uh, I don't even think Gaza is particularly a place that has a large presence of Christianity. I think the West Bank is, as far as Palestinian Christians go. It's like the West Bank, not really the Gaza Strip. Yeah, Gaza Strip. I mean, I was trying to do research, and I think I was finding 1% Christian in like 2 million people. So, again, a lot of the people saying, oh, there's a lot of Christians, and they're not really. Not necessarily. I mean, yeah. 1%. The West Bank is higher. 1% but... of 2 million is, you know. So, um, okay, uh, Greg Shirk uh, asked, what are the spiritual implications here? What God is, what's God doing? Is this an example of free will or the will of God? Um, I think now we're kind of at a point where we can kind of transition uh, to talk, because I got some videos uh, that we can go through of uh, some prophecy um, or pastors, famous pastors discussing this. So, um what do I think God is doing? I, I just think this is normative. Uh, the struggle between Israel and Palestine. I just think that's normative. I'm not sure what special thing is going on here. It could be God rest, you know, helping America, you know, break off of Ukraine and that war by exposing the corruption there. If Ukraine's weapons, the weapons that we send there were sold black market to Hamas. Like that's a, you know, that, uh, you know, there could be some good out of that if we stop sending them weapons, uh, which is, you know, again, irresponsible because, you know, these people are going to, you know, if they get 10 missiles, they're going to sell one of them and pocket the, the cash and use the other nine and then ask for more because they've used 10 missiles. So, yeah, I think, you know, there could be some silver linings here. I don't know. uh what exactly the spiritual implications are here because it could be a judgment against Israel as a nation. I mean, I view it as kind of a judgment on America. It's just like, wow, we are already whipped into another frenzy. You know, we just never learn. We can get the, the war drums are beating and, you know, this is just Ukraine all over again, except, you know, obviously the spiritual implications of Israel have a huge connotation that, you know, it doesn't get shared when the same, you could have the same genocide happen in Nigeria by the what Fusimi Muslims. 
all the herdsmen out in uh, Nigeria. Yeah, exactly. Christians in Nigeria are just getting slaughtered. Um, Christians in uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan, borderlands were getting, you know, attacked. Uh, and there's not really large arms defending them. I think it's just small arms. But they had to fight, you know, tanks and armor and stuff. So I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, obviously, I think everything is in the will of God, like in the sense that, you know, he decreed that these events would happen. Uh, but I don't know what to make of it. Certainly just days were one week into this. I, I don't think, know. I think the problem is people were making something of it you know it's like rapture having rapture bingo and you know okay where does this event event fit into the rapture because it's approaching 75 years of israel so okay but i do think we're at the question of you know what exactly do i believe in about the ethnic state of israel or the ethnic nation nation state of israel as it exists today and here's what a lot of Christians believe that a lot of Christians believe that this is the same nation as in the old Testament. And a lot of Christians foolishly, and I'm trying to be as gentle with that as possible, believe that Judea, modern Judaism is the same as old Testament Judaism. Uh, despite the fact that there is no temple, there is no sacrificial system and there's not a lot of other stuff going on uh, that would make it, you know, Old Testament Judaism. They're, they're not the same religion. Uh, it's, it's not even close. Oh, I mean, the development oh, post-first century. I mean, Talmud, uh, obviously the, uh, I guess, the yarmulke hats that they wear. The Star of David. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the Star of David since I just brought it up. The Star of David is a demonic symbol. I don't know how, I don't know any other way around it. What is biblical about a six-pointed star as a symbol? And I just started asking myself one day, what is this? Who came, like, why would, why would God have made a, a point, like, why would David have used a six-pointed star? Oh, it's not really from David. Now, there are possible biblical references to the Star of David, uh, meaning the Star of Rephraim. Uh, that's a, you know, a possible uh, biblical explanation, but the archaeology uh, dates the Star of David being associated with Judaism post-70 AD. Uh, but again, a lot of archaeology would have been destroyed in a certain siege. So it's, you know, and the other thing, and I was thinking about doing a video on this one day, but the other thing is the Star of David you look at it, you can get to a 666 really quickly based on the numerology of the thing. A hexagon, if you study the occult, a hexagon means Saturn. Uh, which is what Refren, I believe one of the interpretations is that he's, he's a representation of Saturn. So um, that's based on, I believe, like Septuagint inter. Uh, translation of the old past sixth planet uh, from the sun. Company. It is a sixth planet, actually. Yeah, but so uh, Greg Shirk says it's not a cross. So there's that. Um, yes. So anyway, I, I just because otherwise a menorah 
would be a more Jewish symbol. That's the more natural Jewish symbol is a menorah. I mean, I know that's what King, that's what uh, Crusader Kings three uses is the menorah. Yeah, a lot of. I mean, I, I know. Jesus is an obscure reference, but the show plebs they used the menorah as the symbol for the for the Jews. It was it was a menorah, not a not a star of David, because the star of David was not used by Jews until actually until the Zionist movement actually. So. I'm just saying, what is the mark of the beast in Revelation? It's a religious, political, uh, the beast is a religious, political system. And, you know, what symbol represents religion and politics and opposition to God? I'm just saying. So there's a, the numerology is there. But again, not a lot of evangelicals are ready for that conversation because a lot of them proudly flaunt you know, occultic imagery, occultic symbols. Yeah. Well, Greg uh, says Nero is six six six, which I I know that explanation exists. I'm not overly familiar with it, but yes. Well, a prophecy in scripture can have multiple fulfillments, which we'll talk about the prophecies or some of the prophecies uh, regarding dispensationalism in a second, because I have a video lined up for that. Um, but. Going back to that, so a lot of Christians believe that Israel Old Testament is the same as this modern nation state of Israel New Testament. And I would dispute this on two grounds, both spiritually and ethnically. I'm going to push back on both. Most Christians do not push back on, or most people who hold covenant theology would not push back on the ethnic part. But I believe that is important to push back on because dispensationalist arguments blow up if you blow up the ethnic part. Like, they don't have answers for that. But, obviously, I believe that the church is Israel, um, that the, God only has one chosen people, and if you're chosen by God, you don't go to hell. So the elect is God's chosen people, because and God only has one chosen people, and that's why they're chosen. So, eh, do I need to add anything to that? Because, I mean, we're going to get into some of the passages that are used to oppose this idea in a second. But I mean, it, Romans 11 is the biggest passage that's often used to oppose. But, I mean, obviously. I don't even see it in Romans. I don't I, see the dispensationalist argument in Romans I mean, the, I really the problem don't. is you got to read, especially Romans, Hebrews, and some of the other epistles, especially those two, though. You have to read them in light of an impending judgment. Uh, Galatians 3 is also very much. Well, explains that you know the seed of abraham when jesus talks about i am the vine he's talking about cutting the jews off and grafting on or the vines that show no branches will get cut off and cast into the fire he, he's talking about the seed of abraham so there's or he's talking about a lot of things but that's one of the things so um this the ethnic component so let's Push back. So I don't think they're the same ethnically as the Old Testament Jew, uh, Jews. And one of the reasons is that, you know, have you ever heard the term Ashkenazi Jews? Now, this, this has been brought up a lot in the comment in the in the live chat. You guys are bringing up Ashkenazi. Um, uh, so I, I've done some research on this recently because there are two hypotheses uh, or two main hypotheses. There is the Rhineland hypothesis, 
which says that after sometime after 8070, a lot of Jews settled in the Rhineland and developed Yiddish and then moved east. Uh, the Kazarian hypothesis posits that a group of the Khazars, the Khazar cognate in the uh, north of the Caucasus Mountains, they converted to Judaism as a means diplomatically. So they, this whole empire converts to Judaism. The elites do it, and then it trickles down. I believe they last for about 400 years as an empire. I don't know what portion in their empire's history that they converted, but sometime in the Middle Ages, they convert to gain some sort of international legitimacy with the Abrahamic religions. So that would be Islam and Christianity. They wanted to trade with them and stuff like that. Those are two competing theories. And recently I read a study. It's not necessarily a recent study. I believe it's from 2016, 2017 era or maybe 2014, and it traced the link. It used uh, DNA genome analysis and did like a GPS, you know, GPS on top of genome analysis. And it placed the origin, it placed the lin linguistic origin of Yiddish in northern Turkey. And what this is all about is the debate of the origin of the Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews. Now, if you read the Bible, you know that Ashkenaz is a descendant of Japheth in Genesis. So my theory, uh, but let me explain. Uh, finish explaining what the study found first. So in this northern area of Turkey, it's like a little east of Pontus, or it's in Pontus. Um, they found villages that have the name that is very phonetically similar to Ashkenaz. And they believe that this is the origin of Yiddish and consequently also Ashkenazi Jews, which they believe are the result of Iranian-Persian uh, Jews, Irano-Persian Jews converting a local population there. Um, this area is along the Silk Road, and there, and it talks about how Judaism dominated the Silk Road trade. They, uh, a lot of Jews were very successful in the Silk Road trade, and you know Yiddish kind of developed as a result of that. And then it moves towards Germany uh, because the Silk Road kind of went up into there as well. It connected the East and the West, and this was developed as a trading, as, as a trade language, and it also helped you know, keep these people, the groups together. And that was the origins that this study uh, posited, which I think is fascinating that they found an area. Now, I would assume that, you know, the other hypothesis, the Rhineland hypothesis, supposes that they're called Ashkenazi Jews because Ashkenaz is what Jews called Germany in the Middle Ages, even though Gomer, I believe, is the descendant of Noah that's connected with Germany. Uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the uh, Gog and Magog, you know, type of people doing biblical prophecy, they would say Gomer is Germany. So that's what I was, uh, that's, those are two competing hypotheses. I personally believe that, um, I think the study is pretty convincing on the GPS genome analysis. 
And I, I think that explains a lot of things. Most uh, convincingly why, you know, Ashkenaz, yeah, again, that's not a Semitic people group. That's a descendant of Japheth, not Shem. So long story short, I think the, the lineage of Ashkenazi Jews to Abraham is dubious, highly dubious. And this throws a lot of wrenches, I think, into dispensationalism because then they have to answer, um, do people groups that convert to Judaism, are they also ethnic Israel and entitled to the land and covenantal promises of the Old Testament? Now, I believe John Hagee says yes. Because he uses Romans 9 to expand the definition of a Jew. Going along with how the nation state of Israel says you can be a Jew if. And they have like four different, four or five different categories. Uh, so by North Turkey, do you mean the Black Sea coast or further inland? I, I believe along the Black Sea coast. That's uh, gonna, Along the Silk Road. I thought you were going to talk about Ukraine. Uh, when you before you cut out the first so one. the khazars again would have dominated the ukraine area i believe it was this people group that would have converted the, the khazars to judaism so i believe this predated the khazars uh the silk road pre predates the khazars the khazars want to participate in the silk road trade they adopt judaism they populate a lot of eastern europe now like i don't believe that i i you know, if someone says, oh, I'm a Russian or a Ukrainian Jew, I don't necessarily believe that they have a uh, lineage to Abraham. I think it's highly suspect because of the Khazars. Now, if someone's a Shepardic Jew, I think that's how it's pronounced. That means Iberian Peninsula. They, they moved over to the Iberian Peninsula of Northern Africa. I don't necessarily have a reason to not suspect that they have a, a lineage to Abraham. I, I But they're the lesser prevalent people group so there's a lot of history and i think dispensationalists they have to defend the ethnic premise because i don't see how it makes sense that converts i don't i don't see how it makes sense that the descendant the descendants of sammy davis jr are now all of a sudden entitled to land covenantal promises when those, those, you know, the forerunners, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. or Whoopi Goldberg, you know, converting to Judaism or changing her name to sound Jewish, um, they had Christianity as an option, so to speak, uh, by blood and uh, ancestry. So that's my thoughts. Uh, so. And I don't know what the dispensationalist response to that is. Because they would probably go with the Rhineland hypothesis. Which would have to justify why Yiddish and German don't exactly match as nicely. Like I believe syntactically it's closer to a Slavic language. But vocabulary wise it has a lot of old Germanic. So. I guess the question is how many of them even understand anything that you just said or maybe they've just heard the the dna the analysis was done based off yiddish speakers 
or people who had parents who were. I, I thought that I thought it was an interesting study. And it, you know, it was reported by Jewish outlets also, while also, you know, subsequently being denounced by them. I, I thought I thought it was pretty interesting because you know GPS G, DNA analysis. And I mean, and I also I also yeah. read that twenty three and Me had to like apologize for giving results that confirm the Khazar hypothesis. It's like we we we're sorry for this. We should have known this was an error. So that's a story that I I, I found when I re went into this topic. So two things, right? They have to defend the spiritual uh, Israel arguments of dispensationalism, and they have to defend the ethnic arguments. They have to defend both. And I think that's the strongest argument against that is to make them defend both, specifically the ethnic one, because they have to draw a lot. They have to define who a Jew is, um, and it kind of puts them in the same you know, argumentation, because you talked in your article on Mark Dice that, you know, Mormons and black Hebrew Israelites all wanted to find themselves as Jews. And, you know, it, you if you want to debate those clans, those, those cults, you got to actually address that issue head on. So I think dispensationalism is the same way, even though it's not a heresy, it's still falls under the umbrella of this is what an orthodox believer can hold to because we're talking eschatology at the end of the day but uh nonetheless um they have to defend both premises so uh i have some bible prophecy videos to show you uh the first one is jack hibbs so let me know what you think of this Uh, if I actually can get it to play. No doubt about it. Number one, you can always chalk this up when events take place in the world is this, and you'll be safe by doing so. And that is, are the events in the Middle East, for example, the events uh, regarding Israel, or what about the horrific earthquake uh, in Afghanistan? Is that Bible prophecy being fulfilled or is it Bible prophecy being set up? So I believe what we're looking at right now is Bible prophecy being set up. Jesus said there'll be wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. So this would play into that. When you see what's happening in Israel right now and in Gaza and in Lebanon and the players, mind you, this is very serious, very critical. United States, Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, the, the players that are in play right now regarding this issue, this we know for sure, biblically, conservatively, is that the stage is being set. Can we point to chapter and verse that this is what's happening? Not yet, not so soon. So don't let anybody fool you. I believe we're seeing Bible prophecy set up. No doubt soon, we'll see if it's fulfilled. So far, so reasonable. I'm assuming there's some kind of escalation, increasing uh, severity order that we're gonna go in. Because that was kind of tame. That's kind of saying, you know, the stage is being set, which again was consistent with his with his theology, without necessarily saying, okay, this is it. This is the, the Gog and Magog. That's the uh, the uh, Habsburg uh, dynasty, or the Archduke of Ferdinand moment in the 
biblical prophecy. And you're actually right. That was me putting out a more innocuous example. Uh, I I actually like Jack Hibbs. I, I don't really have a reason to dislike him. I know he's got some things on theology that I don't agree with, but that was pretty reasonable. He did not clown himself. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he's pretty heavy on the Dispy side of things, but you saw that that was a pretty reasonable take. That was not over embellishing. That was not reading scripture into, uh, current events. That was someone who was just saying, Hey, wars and rumors of wars. This is a setup for biblical prophecy, not necessarily the fulfillment of it. Pretty reasonable. I thought, Mm -hmm. uh, good on, uh, Jack hips. Uh, so, uh, one more thing I wanted to say about the, uh, genetic, uh, ethnic Israel, the ethnic seed of Abraham is that I think that for the most part, it's genetically diaspora. Meaning I think that the actual descendants of Abraham for the most part are genetically scattered. They're scattered among the nations of Christianity and they're scattered among the nations of Islam for the most part. So even if there's a promise for those people, what if it's still continuously being fulfilled today when people with that lineage become believers? And they don't necessarily hold to, you know, modern Judaism because think about native Americans for a second and how majority of native Americans actually assimilated into American culture. And, you know, there, there's a lot of people that have more than Elizabeth Warren levels of native American in them. And I think that's going to be true for say a lot of people and Abraham's uh, lineage they might have some Abrahamic lineage in them, but they're so genetically scattered. So that's the other hurdle that I think they have that dispensationalists have to jump through on the ethnic Israel argument. Uh, you have anything to say on that? Um, I mean, there's also the Arab, like, I mean, if you go to the early Middle Ages, like pre Islam. Uh, there's the Himyarite kingdom, which was a Jewish monarchy that existed in what is now modern day Yemen. So they kind of were along the Red Sea and they had like a thriving kingdom for, I think, 150 ish years. And then I think those would be the types of Jews that Muhammad would later go to war with. So there were Jewish monarchs in the southern Arabian Peninsula, as we know it. OK, so here is another one. Uh, This is from Clown World. Uh, And this is from Rabbi Jason Sobel. I don't really know who he is, but this is from TBN. Yeah. That's why it's Clown World. Yes, that's why it's Clown World. Not because I know who he is. But of course, there is something even deeper here on a spiritual level because Iran is biblical Persia. And so we know that on the biblical perspective, Haman came out of Persia. And so it's something very interesting. In our show, God's Appointed Times, we go through the biblical holidays. Well, the biblical holidays are meant to be prophetic timepieces 
a prophetic picture of redemption. And what's interesting is that Passover, the day God brought Israel out of Egypt, the day um, Jesus died on the cross, happens on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. 14 is the number of the hand in Hebrew. It happens in the first month of the Hebrew calendar. The last biblical calendar, last holiday of the biblical calendar is Purim. And that deliverance happens on the 14th day of the month of Adar when God delivered Israel in Persia from Haman. This represents something very significant prophetically. Passover represents redemption at the beginning of history. Purim at the end of the calendar represents what's going to happen at the end of history. So it's no surprise that Iran, Persia has risen up again in the spirit of Haman, which is the spirit of Amalek is alive today in the world coming after the Jewish people. They wanted to wipe out every Jewish man, woman and child. And that's exactly the same spirit that we see going on with Hamas in Iran today. And folks. All right. Fake that, news or not? Is that recent? Yes. Okay. Fake news or not? I mean, I've never heard the I've never heard the argument of the redemption and the 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 prophetic window. It's an interesting, I guess, lens. I'm not sure I buy it. Well, we... there's a lot of things that I did I don't necessarily buy from this one, and one of them was the Haman came out of Persia, like. He was an Agagite, so wasn't he a descendant yeah, he of kinda, he threw a Canaanite? In, no, the uh, Amal, 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 Amala, Amalekites. Amalekites, but okay, it's so weird. I'm, I'm surprised he didn't try to make the argument that an Amalekite will rise up again kind of thing. I I'm, I thought that's where he would have taken it. Instead, he's saying the spirit of Amalek or the spirit of Haman. Yeah, the spirit of Haman. So a couple things that are also obviously wrong. So Haman was evil because he wanted to... Um, I would say he was probably under the influence of Satan um, because he he was attacking the lineage of Christ. He was attacking the Davidic lineage. And yeah, this I mean, was a this was an event that arose to threaten the Davidic line, same as the uh, the flood. And God takes very drastic measures in the flood to protect the sanctity of the line of Seth. And, and the line of I mean, Noah. There's a, there's a lot of like ideas of, of means of which uh, Satan tries to corrupt the lineage. You have Amalek attacking in the desert in Sinai. Of course, the Haman. Um, yeah, the flood because if the Nephilim had corrupted the entire human genome, then there there is no pure um, messianic blood or uncorrupted seed so to speak and i guess the third one would be uh even the idea of abraham taking tribute from sodom and gomorrah would have corrupted the like uh, would have corrupted abraham so i mean there's a lot of notions that you can't uh, uh hamas is haman is a persian underling hamas is iran under underlying and that's a phonetic argument just like when david jeremiah says rosh is russia and uses a phonetic argument which is a very bad phonetic argument by the way because the ruse didn't exist for a thousand years after that um so yeah that's the uh type of argument we expect from clown world i guess i i don't i i don't necessarily think that that's correct um 
I mean, we got, is, his, is his eschatology that there's going to be a leveling event at the end of history? Uh, so you want to do Ray Comfort or Greg Laurie next? Uh, which one's more insane? Because, I mean, I feel like Ray uh, Comfort. Ray Comfort, Ray, I would say, is more I feel insane. like he'd be so nice. Why? Because his, his name denotes comfort? Yes. Okay. In well, part, and he's New Zealand, so, you know. Okay, so him or Greg Laurie? I guess we'll we'll do Greg Laurie first. All right, Greg Laurie is next. I and just a disclaimer, I don't know much about Greg Laurie other than the Jesus, Jesus Revolution. Revolution movie, and I know he's a huge name. Uh, and he's bald, and kind of rocks it, but I don't know much about him. I've never done research on him. I know he is dispy because you know, again, he's a disciple, so to speak, of Chuck Smith. He was pretty dispy. Um, and of Calvary Chapel, as was shown in the movie. But just saying, I don't, I'm not an expert on him. I uh, don't ask me to say whether or not he, I think he's a false teacher because I haven't researched it. Moscow, not Paris, but Jerusalem, this tiny little city in this tiny sliver of land will play a key role in the events of the last days. It's the focal point of end times events. It's amazing when you think about it because in Zechariah 12, God says, I will make Jerusalem and Judah like an intoxicating drink to all the nearby nations that send their armies to besiege Jerusalem. On that day I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone, a burden for the world, and none of the nations who try will be able to lift it. Now, the irony of all of this is the United States of America through the Biden administration just gave $6 billion to Iran. What a bad move that is. What a bad move it is to give any money to this nation that sponsors terrorism around the world. But here's where it gets interesting for students of Bible prophecy. The Bible tells us in the end times that Israel would be scattered and regathered. This has happened. You want to talk about signs of the times, the super sign of the last days, and really the sign that sets the prophetic clock ticking is the regathering of the nation Israel into their homeland. On the heels of the Holocaust, who would have ever thought that these Jewish people who lost six million uh, of their people uh, to the Nazis would somehow regather in their homeland, but it happened against all odds. And on May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. I'm proud to say the United States was the first nation to acknowledge that. But God said she'll be regathered. And then the Lord said she would come under attack. And specifically in Ezekiel 37 and 38, the Bible speaks of the regathering of Israel. And then it speaks of a large force from her north attacking her. That force is identified as Magog. Who is Magog? Listen, no one can say with absolute certainty. But many, many Bible students and prophecy teachers believe it's modern day Russia. I think you can make a very good case for that. If you get out a map of the Middle East and look to the north of Israel, you will find Russia. Why would Russia ever want to invade Israel? Well, there's another thing the Bible says about Magog, if she is indeed Russia, and that one of her allies that will march with her is Persia. 
proves it. I want to pause right here. Um, we still got a couple more minutes left in the clip, but um, let he uses Zachariah 12, I believe. Yes. And that is a passage about the church, actually. That's, you know, how the reformers would have interpreted. That's how it was historically uh, interpreted was that the church of God will prevail, you know, uh, the, you know, and the gates of hell will, you know, not prevail against the church or whatever. So the church is going to endure uh, persecution, enemies of God, and they cannot defeat the church. They cannot defeat the kingdom of God. And that's kind of what Zechariah 12 is about. Obviously, they make it about Zionism. That's uh, kind of how it's made about. And then you get into the whole Gog and Magog being Russia thing, which is also erroneous. When I was more dispy back in the day, um, I clear I believe that Gog and Magog would have been Turkey. So the Turks would have been the baddies, not the Russians. So, which I mean, historically, you know, when you think Turkey, I mean, obviously the Ottomans and. So, I mean, they had a much more global presence. And even now, like, Ergodin is definitely trying to establish a, himself as a regional power. He's trying to do land grabs in Syria. And it's not like the Turks are friends of the Israelis because it looks like, you know, here's another Disby joke that they're going to get. It's almost been three and a half years since the Abrahamic Accords. So, just saying, we haven't been raptured yet. Well, I mean, that's the other thing. When you look at the whole Israel timeline, I mean, how long? I mean, a lot of people started a clock, uh, basically, either in 1949, maybe they pushed it back to 1967. Uh, then pushed uh, it back after the Yom Kippur War. So, I mean, there is a sense that if, there is a sense of goalpost moving as far as when. Uh, a eschatological clock starts. Yeah, it almost seems like divine trolling that these types of wars happen, but they don't amount to the rapture or the end times. But this isn't treated like the Millerites. Uh, if you get that reference from the 1800s is the ancient name for modern Iran. So the Bible predicted hundreds of years ago that this large force from the north of Israel would attack her after she was regathered and one of the allies that would attack Israel with Mother Russia or Magog, whoever it is, would be Iran or Persia. And it's only recently that the Iranians and the Russians have developed a special connection. Not once in the past 2,500 years has Russia formed a military alliance with Persia, Iran, but they have now signed a billion dollar deals uh, to some missiles to Iran and the Iranians have helped the Russians providing them with uh, drones, weaponized drones to use in the Ukraine war. You probably heard about that. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said of this, Iran and Russia are very disturbing to us. Iran supplying Russia with drones, Russia helping Iran with nuclear weapons. The only way to stop Iran is with a credible military threat. So how do you stop something like this? Literally, there are hostages from Israel, old women, little children. All right. 
going to pause right there for a second. Let's talk about Persia, Iran for a second. So in 1935, Persia changes their name to Iran. I believe it was actually because they kind of aligned with a lot of Hitlery type of views uh, because Iran was more, you know, Iran is based on the term Aryan as an Aryan race. Um, and if you know the history of a lot of that area, you know, if you go a little bit east to India, they had the Aryan invasion. So that that's part of the history. So the Iranians also have some sort of history identifying as Aryan and Farsi is an Indo-European language. So that's why they changed their name to Iran. I think that's kind of ironic, but that's the history. More irony on the whole history and uh, prophecy fire is that, you know, during the Israeli War of Independence, which is the only time in which all of the Israel was surrounded by enemies that attacked the nation uh, because they weren't completely surrounded during the Yom Kippur War. And they launched the attack in the Six-Day War. It was a preemptive attack. Persia was an ally of Israel. So Iran, up until 1979, because it was, secular. was an ally of Israel. Secular Iran, right? So that changed in the uh, 1979 revolution, in which Israel is no longer an ally of Iran, or Iran and Israel are no longer on friendly terms. That changed. So there's only it's a very recent, or not recent, but you know, going back to 1979, that Iran does not like Israel. Uh, young women and soldiers as well because these civilians were actually targeted in this attack. How do you deal with this? It's very tricky. Let's just say for the sake of a point that Israel decided to strike out at Iran specifically because they're funding all of this. What would that produce? Well, it could produce, it could produce a conflict we read about in Ezekiel where suddenly, because the Bible says that Magog will come against her will, the Bible describes hooks in her jaws, pulling her forward, almost as though Magog is coming in reluctantly along with her ally, Persia or Iran. I'm not saying this is gonna lead to the Ezekiel 37, 38 scenario, but I'm saying it's very interesting. If you get up in the morning and read this headline, Russia attacks Israel, fasten your seatbelt. You're seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in your lifetime in real time before your very eyes. So what should we do in light of all of this? Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, freak out because you're dead in the water. Well, he didn't say that, did he? He said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up because your redemption is drawing near. That's what we need to be doing, looking up. I give him credit for the joke. I, I'm very nice to Greg Laurie because I ended it on that note. I ended this, I wanted to end this clip on that note. I wrote down the timestamps that I wanted to use. And that was where I wanted to end off was with him, you know, at least pointing back to God. Because, again, I, I don't have reason to think he's a false teacher because I, again, never researched it. Uh, but. Again, that was a good ending, and it kind of I wanted to show, hey, we can disagree. Now I'm just positing my views on why I'm not a dispensationalist. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Russia for a second. Russia is not actually Russia is actually encouraging peace 
uh, in a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. I mean, and I think China contrary, also contrary to like all the Cold War propaganda, Russia isn't really the aggressor we make them out to be. They might just want like a sphere of influence, and that's it. But I mean, they wanted peace and stability in Syria, which you know America didn't. They didn't. They didn't want us going into Iraq, and they were proven right. They certainly don't want America invading Iran. So, I mean, and they did not approve of Libya. Um, well, again, again, Libya was a stupid idea at the time, uh, you know, Marco Rubio. So this uh, idea of like Russia being this aggressor, I mean, it's not the Cold War anymore. Yeah. So they, they, and looking at Russian media, they're not overly pro-Israel or pro-Hamas. I don't think they, I think the Russians don't like either side. If I had to gauge my viewpoint on it, I don't think they really like either side of this conflict. No, if anything, uh, Russia wants to might want to exploit the fact that Ukraine sent the weapons down. Like that would be their yeah, angle. That would be their angle for the, sure. They and want to make do, sure that they want that to be true. And to make Zelensky look bad for trying to make it about him. He's trying to do the Me Too movement on it, on Palestine and the Palestinians. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty cringe out of uh, Greg Laurie. And that's during a sermon, I think. He posted this video, by the way. And it's got a million views. So, next video is uh, Roy Comfort. It is... Um, about three minutes. Declared it is at war after Hamas militants confirmed they fired thousands of rockets from Gaza overnight in a major multi-front surprise attack. Hamas has launched a surprise attack within Israel's borders overnight. War in Israel, and particularly the battle for Jerusalem, sends those who know their Bibles to key Bible verses. The re-establishment of Israel in 1948 was a pivotal event in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The prophet Ezekiel, writing over 2,500 years ago, spoke of a future restoration of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. All right. So one of the reasons why I wanted to do this clip, because it was a good... Re, uh, a good way to do a Bible breakdown on this subject. I guess so, God didn't bring the people back after Babylon. Yes, that is to me clearly a fulfilled prophecy about Babylon, the Babylonian exile. I don't know why someone reads that and says this is going to be about the end times. I mean, what does that do to anyone that was Ezekiel's contemporaries i mean daniel obviously daniel's reading the prophet jeremiah he's not saying yeah this is some eschatological prophecy that's happening so no need to plead to the pray to god and plead to the king of persia to let the people return he doesn't do that he's so is the argument that because israel didn't have sovereignty that they weren't their own nation and therefore the return from exile doesn't count. Is that their argument? Uh, that argument's still wrong, by the way. 
because the Judeans revolted against the Seleucids. I believe it was the Seleucids. Uh, and the Maccabees, if you've ever heard of them, they had their own uh, little kingdom or whatever that they set up. And they were a client state of Rome. Uh, they were allies with the Romans, actually. So b because they're a buffer against Rome. I mean, this might be so a time where they'll say multiple fulfillments. But, but I, don't, I don't know if. But again, I mean, I, I would agree that this prophecy has multiple fulfillments, but I think it's Jesus's second coming. It'll be fulfilled again. So I, I don't get the argument for how, you know, this is about 1947, 1948. In 70 AD, Israel was scattered among the nations and the Jews had no homeland for 2000 years. Like I said earlier on the stream menorah was the natural symbol of the jews not the star of david yes until 1948 when they became a nation in one day isaiah 66 verse 8 says shall the earth be made to give birth in one day or shall a nation be born at once this is what jesus said of that event okay uh and again, that, uh was uh, isaiah literally, literally what we just talked about were did the jews not return to Israel post Babylon, and he just glosses over two thousand years of history. I, I also think that's about Jesus's, you know, crucifixion, paying the atonement. A nation it's born, about, in one, a nation born. Yes. In one day. So, because of the price that was paid, a nation is born. People are saved. So, I think that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the kingdom of God is, you know, in. in in a sense, come. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So what are your thoughts on this? Luke uh, 21, verse 24. I mean, this is the problem with picking the one verse. This is Luke 21, verse... 24. So the idea is that, okay, the Jews will be taken away captive into all nations, trampled by Gentiles until the time where the Gentiles are fulfilled. Does this mean that there's a eschatological promise for the Jews? And if so, again, going back to the question of ethnicity, who are the Jews that this would be fulfilled? Is it the people that still hold to a form of Judaism? I mean, again, this since this is like the I think this is the parallel to Matthew 24. So it does. I mean, again, if you take the preterist view of Matthew 24, you would probably have to take the preterist view of Luke 21. And Matthew 24. I mean, that's the because, again, this would be talking about Jerusalem. This would be a prophecy of Jerusalem's. This fall. is a prophecy about 8070. Interpretation of that passage would have to be the same as Matthew 24. Fair enough. I, I also see this as somewhat um, preterist as well, in the sense that I do a lot of Jews converted in the early Roman his, in, in the early church history. A lot of Jews converted to Christianity. 
So, you know, whether it be like the third century or whatever, um, this is very much true. And again, if a lot of people, ethnic people groups converted to Judaism post 8070, um, it, it still doesn't necessarily apply because again, they're not necessarily, you know, they're still technically Gentiles in a certain sense. Since that time, there's been continual conflict between Muslims and Jews for Jerusalem, and none of the nations know how to handle what is commonly called the ongoing Middle East crisis. Listen to Zechariah 12, verses 2 to 3, written thousands of years ago, address the crisis of Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day, I'll make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. Jesus spoke of wars being a sign of the end of the age. And you'll hear... So Zechariah 2, we kind of discussed that it's referring to the church. It's referring to Christianity. I mean, Zechariah has a lot of Christological prophecy for anyone that's out there. Hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. All this will climax in the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 6 verse... So that was Matthew 24 he uh, read from. Uh, I don't think it says Armageddon in Matthew 24. Yeah, I think he's about to read Revelation. 16 speaks of the gathering of nations at a place called Armageddon, a term synonymous with a final cataclysmic battle. Have you heard of Armageddon? Of course. What is that? The the big war at the the end, the true good versus evil. Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, Look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. So what should we do? Firstly, we should make sure that we're right with God by trusting in Jesus. Secondly, we must pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and at the same time take the gospel to the unsaved. An often overlooked sign of the end times is that the gospel will be preached to all nations. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. I know that there's been con. I believe that's the end of what I wanted to show um, from this. So, I guess where does capture in with the battle of Armageddon? Now, again, Armageddon isn't necessarily a place. Uh, it's it's, like a, isn't it like a compound word? Yeah, it's kind of compounded in a reference to Megiddo which is a place, a historical battlefield, a, you know, strategic location. Uh, I, I believe one of the history's first recorded battles between the Canaanites and the Egyptians took place around there as well. So very historic place. Uh, and it, it, it's a battlefield. So it's playing into that. But Megiddo also isn't Jerusalem. So it's kind of hard to read into that. And then, of course, you have to read in Rapture and a lot of other hills. I don't see it. And I mean, even still, I mean, if you read Revelation, the dragon being hurled from heaven, I mean, the idea that it's this epic battle that's Lord of the Rings, good versus evil. No, it's, you know, you're not going to be able like it's it's not a contest, yeah, that, that's the other thing. Like, we think of this as a climactic battle. It's 
probably not going to be very climactic. It's going to be extremely one-sided. It's going to be like the armies of Vietnam going against Dr. Manhattan. It's You're just going to get sapped. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, a lot of people, you know, want to make it you know seem grand, more grander than it actually is. And it will be grand, but it won't be as evenly handed, evenly matched as or even close. Or even, I don't even think the Battle of Armageddon will even appear even or even close. It's going to be a route because this is God saying, you know, I've had enough Satan. You're completely done now. And ending whatever power he's allowed to have. So those are just some thoughts. Again, I don't know much about Ray comfort. Um, I know of him. I know he has a lot of short books on gospel presentations and stuff like that, but I don't know much about him at all. So, but I, I saw that video. It had a lot of views and, you know, I, I thought it was relevant to this discussion, but it's still reading current event events into scripture. And here's the thing about, here's, here's the thing about dispensationalism. I liked it for a time because it made the Bible seem more reliable, but I think now that I've definitely switched to the other side and switched hard, I see it as a shortcut to getting someone to affirm the value of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture, the uh, modern applicability of scripture. I think it is a shortcut for that. And it's a shortcut because you're reading modern events into it. And it's like, yeah. oh, the Bible totally predicted it, and therefore it's totally reliable. But I think it's a shortcut to coming to that conclusion. I mean, even because if you go to like Ezekiel 38 with uh, the like Gog and Magog, or that could refer to the Seleucids. Um, obviously, Antiochus Epiphanes would be the first Antichrist or the archetypal Antichrist. The best answer I heard, and it was in the comment section when I did a video on this, was Haman was Gog of Magog. And that this was fulfilled in Esther. I thought that was a pretty compelling argument. Uh, now, Russell Fuller said that that was more eschatological, but he's not dispensational. I, I thought that's interesting, but I don't think his views necessarily fit neatly into a box uh, either. So, uh, along those lines, I think, again, it's a shortcut to the reliability of Scripture. I think you know, scripture speaks for itself and we don't have to read modern news into it in order to come to the conclusion that scripture is reliable. And that's where I'm at uh, spiritually. I, I don't know if you have any, uh, uh, have you like shifted your theology in one way or another on this issue? I mean, I can't say, I mean, the problem is like growing up, you just kind of assume like a lot of the premillennial dispensational position until you learn the other positions, until you learn the, a lot of the Christian history. So that's probably, the, the, and again, I was never dogmatic on eschatology. I'm, yeah, I'm still not. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think the problem is that we are like certain people are dogmatic on eschatology. I think that's a problem and a hindrance towards the gospel itself and towards the mission of the church. 
And again, that's not saying one camp versus the other. You can find like, I mean, I mean, even a lot of NAR theology is dogmatic in like a post-mill sense, but like the Charles Finney brand of post-millennialism, not the, I guess, the puritanical post-millennialism. So even if you go in that direction, you can be very skewed or if you could, so on it, both ends of the eschatology discussion, you can, if you're over emphasis on it, then you can go in the wrong direction very easily. Yeah. So, and I guess one of the reasons why I'm kind of going harder against dispensationalism, because I do feel like it is a theology that's holding back the church. I don't think it's outside of orthodoxy, but I do think it holds back the church. It, there are some things that are wrong. They're still in the bounds of orthodoxy, so to speak. Like you're not a heretic if you believe it, but it's an unhelpful doctrine that I think has some damaging implications. And one of those damaging implications is that you, you, we have an entire political lobby that's about paying tribute to Israel. So we are essentially tributary or paying tribute to a foreign nation uh, to in order to appeal to a divine mandate. I don't like that at all. You know, I, I agree with the Jeffersonian, you know, millions for defense, not a penny for tribute type of mentality. So that's one, one area. Another area is that convinces many people like John Hagee not to evangelize the Jews. That's an entire category of people. I mean, there's a lot of heresies that you can like for, you have regular, normal dispensational theology, but you do get a lot of offshoots that are very heretical. You do have like the dualistic covenant. Yeah. Multiple idea. paths of salvation. Yeah. I mean, obviously I do think you get, uh, trans uh, dispensational, like your when you talk Tony about Tony Evans, or I think even Billy Graham might have espoused that. And obviously, Catholics with Vatican II, which I mean, it, which not that they aren't are dispensational, but obviously, when you start saying, "Hey, other religions can go to heaven too," then or you don't need the gospel to to uh, go to heaven. So a lot of movements that. And perhaps that's a means of appealing to Jews for Vatican II. And it was. Uh, I, I know, like, again, because that was post-Holocaust, uh, the Catholic Church tried to, like, walk back a lot of church history. Um, so, anyway, I think that's really all we got to say about that. Um, anyway, thanks for coming on. Uh, despite all technical difficulties in, in trying to get this message out, um, anyway, have a blessed day. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your way out and we will catch you on the next one.